0: Hello and welcome to the powers that be Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of wall street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. Welcome. First, I'll be talking to Matt Bellany about Alec Baldwin, conspiracy theories, the latest Marvel release, possibly a rare dud and Kevin Mayer. Is he the hottest player in Hollywood right now? Then I talked to Julia Yaffe about Tuesday's elections, the shocker in Virginia and whether it was about critical race theory, Joe Biden or something else. Then Dylan Byers comes by to talk about his exclusive interview with Mark Zuckerberg and explain what the hell the metaverse actually is and whether anybody we know will actually put on a VR headset, especially after COVID. These are the great sort of conversations you can only have with expert insider plugged in reporters who really know what's going on. I hope that you enjoy The Powers That Be. Joining me now on The Powers That Be, uh, I can see him on Zoom and his Dodgers hat as always is Matt Bellany, Matt. Happy November. How was trick-or-treating this year in your neighborhood? It was
1: pretty good, actually. Pretty robust. We we had one situation where we came across a full candy bar, full-size candy bar house. But unfortunately, when you took the full-size candy bar, it came with a Jesus Saves pamphlet. So you had a little bit of religious conversion with your full-size candy bar. My kid didn't really notice. He was pretty happy with his haul. We dressed as the Paw Patrol family, which I'm sure you... Are unfamiliar with, but uh, my kid was Chase. I was Marshall. We had Zuma. We had Liberty. All of them.
0: We dressed as Roman and Jerry from Succession, um, which is a high nice. concept costume. I assume was, you were Jerry. I was. I was Jerry. I was absolutely Jerry. <laughs> and then I went home and changed into my Paw Patrol costume. Nice. All right, Matt. So the the first thing I, I want to ask you about, you know, we talked about this. Uh, Off the bat last week is the Alec Baldwin investigation. He made his first comments uh, up in Vermont when he was caught on camera by a bunch of paparazzi with his wife, Um, you know, and he looked, he looked pretty frazzled and pretty intense as usual and said, this is my friend and he can't answer any questions because of the investigation. There's nothing new really in the investigation, but, but Matt, people are still talking about it. What are they saying?
1: I mean, the most bizarre thing was that the attorney for the woman who was the armorer on the movie, the woman in charge of the guns, the attorney went on the Today Show and essentially planted this theory that it could have been a setup, that this might have been sabotage, the attorney called it, where someone might have put a real bullet in with the blanks and tried to screw around with people or screw around with Baldwin. You know, And that has fueled a lot of these conspiracy theories, which I had already been hearing around town. You know, Alec Baldwin is a very complicated and in some corners not liked person in the industry. And people have sort of said, well, what if this was some kind of an effort to get back at him or get back at the producer? We know that some of the crew members had walked off the set to protest poor conditions. We know that this was an inexperienced crew and that they were cutting corners and penny pinching. Uh, in a bunch of different ways. So what if, according to these conspiracists, this was an inside job? This was you know, perfectly... Everything had to happen in a certain way for this kind of an accident to happen. And you know, everything is lined up where if it was something that was done on purpose, it would explain a lot. Now, I don't actually believe this, and at least there's been no evidence to suggest this so far, but it hasn't stopped people from floating these conspiracy theories.
0: But wait, are people in the professional ranks of of film and, and movies in Hollywood talking about these conspiracy theories, or is this like a like a Facebook? Sure, of course. Thing? I mean,
1: no one no one knows yet. Yeah, no one knows. This is not the kind of thing that your mom sees on Facebook and texts you a screenshot of something that you know a friend of hers' kid said. These are like real people talking about this. However, no one knows because the investigation is not complete. What we do know is that there were so many different things that had to happen from the gun, not being checked prior to being given to Baldwin from the armor, apparently not knowing that there were bullets in there from the scene in particular being one where Baldwin pointed the gun at the camera and thus at the cinematographer, all of these things had to combine for a, what he called a one in a trillion event that caused the death of this cinematographer. So, you know, people are latching on to the, to the, the idea that maybe it wasn't such an accident. And I don't believe that, but it's a conspiracy theory going around.
0: Yeah. It feels partly because Baldwin is so polarizing politically too. Like it feels like something that some weirdos might latch onto and it might have some long tail.
1: Oh, I mean, I, you know, Don jr is already coming up with a t-shirt for this.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. That's what I was going to say. Like you'll see this at a, either a QAnon rally or a, like a Ron DeSantis rally at some point on a t-shirt or a sign like the some wing nut in the corner will be ranting about it. Uh, I want to talk to you about Marvel and I always want to talk to you about Marvel as usual because I don't watch any of these movies but I also understand how powerful and how much money they make (laughs) and how powerful they are. Eternals is the latest installment of the Marvel universe. Uh, It comes out this weekend it was it was directed by Chloe Zhao, who directed *Nomad Nomadland*, which won Best Picture and Best Director. This is the first Marvel movie actually directed by a Best Director winner. However, it is the lowest rated on Rotten Tomatoes since *Thor: The Dark World* eight years ago. Is the latest Marvel movie just bad? Is it destined to be a dud? What's the buzz about this film?
1: I mean, I haven't actually seen it yet, but you know, it is not getting the typically strong buzz that the Marvel movies get the critical community, critics generally like the Marvel movies. Now, I don't know that that's going to impact the fan community at all because often these Marvel movies are kind of critic proof. You know, it doesn't really matter what the critics say. But Marvel has been the one franchise where they can make these movies hit on all cylinders, meaning they hit the critics and they hit the fans. The tracking is about 75 million to open this weekend. That would be on par with what Black Widow and Shang-Chi did you know, for a big Marvel team up movie, if you compare it to something more like the Avengers, this doesn't uh, seem like it would compare. However, these are mostly unknown characters. This is a new universe of Marvel heroes. And it's something more akin to when they launched Guardians of the Galaxy. But even that movie was a little bit more fun and kind of pitched as like a space opera. This is a more traditional kind of Marvel superhero team up feels a little bit to me like it might not do those numbers like it's not quite gonna hit um, what they expected, which you know it's it's a big test to the Marvel brand. There's no better brand in the entertainment industry than Marvel right now, so I wouldn't bet against it. But if it doesn't hit those numbers, I would not be surprised.
0: So this is this is a, a dumb question again from a Marvel agnostic. Driving around Los Angeles, you see billboards. It feels like every two weeks for a new installment in the Marvel franchise. How often are they dropping new movies, and what what is the strategy there? More,
1: more is it every other week? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: no, no, that's what I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean it seems like we are moving into a phase where it's going to be some kind of Marvel content almost all the time. Whether it's going to be a movie in theaters or one of those limited series on Disney Plus, you know, there's going to be something for the Marvel Cinematic Universe pretty much all year going forward. I think that's gonna be in three to four movies per year, typically. They pushed A number of those movies that are in the works, uh, Black Panther 2, another Doctor Strange. um, There's a couple of other untitled Marvel movies. All those movies were pushed a bit. And the the reasoning was, um, the stated reasoning was that, you know, they're all interconnected and the storylines cross over so that you push one, you got to push them all. Some people think that these were pandemic related, either production wise or Disney's a little upset over, not upset, they're a little disappointed in some of the recovery in theaters after the pandemic. So the more you push, the more likely theaters will rebound to normal. For the foreseeable future, the Marvel movies will be theatrical exclusives. We saw some hybrid releases this past year, and they got some mixed results on those, most notably on Black Widow with Scarlett Johansson. But um, Shang-Chi was a theatrical exclusive, it did okay. This movie, Eternals, is a theatrical exclusive. Neither of those two movies is getting a China release. The Chinese were not two bigger fans of Shang-Chi and Chloe Zhao has made some comments critical of China. So her movie is not getting a Chinese release. That's a big blow for both those movies, but Disney thinks that, you know, Marvel going forward is going to be a theatrical franchise.
0: Why was, I missed that. Why was China critical of Shang-Chi?
1: They never explicitly state why a movie doesn't get a release there. There was some reporting about how they didn't like the character, um, and some sort of, some of the mythology around it. Um, one of the actors in the film had made some critical comments in the past, and you know we 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 know that China can react in very dramatic fashion to even the smallest little slight. And we saw with the John Cena situation, where you know he acknowledged Taiwan, <laughs> and all of a sudden you know uh, there was enormous backlash, and he had to apologize in Mandarin. So you know there there is a lot of that. Chloe Zhao, I mean, there's some. Nomadland did not get a Chinese release because she made some comments a long time ago about how is China is a country full of lies and there was a couple of other comments that were misattributed to her. Um, so you know that's a big deal when you're talking about the loss of a potential, you know, 100, 150 million dollars in box office. China is a whole separate headache for Hollywood right now that's going through a transition period where a lot fewer movies are being let in. Most of the movies that are doing well in China right now are Chinese homegrown movies. They sort of learned how to make those types of movies for their own market, and now they are releasing them and giving them priority in theaters. So the Hollywood movies are much less profitable in China than they used to be, but it's still an important market. You want to release there, and movies like Dune and James Bond have been released there um, over the past couple weeks.
0: Not not for this episode, but I have a Chloe Zhao mystery i need you to solve which is i uh met up with my mom and dad at shutters um right after the academy awards and saw her leaving the hotel and get into a toyota prius and i I thought it was cool or surprising at least that a best director winner was driving a prius however i was not sure if it was actually her car um but i thought that was a fun piece of color about somebody who just won an academy award yeah,
1: if it was any time around the Oscar season, probably wasn't her car. She was probably being driven around, but who knows?
0: I want to ask you also about Kevin Mayer, uh, who a lot of listeners might not know who that is, or might not have known who he is until just over the last year. I know him because I, I remember he ran TikTok for a while until Trump tried to force a sale from TikTok. For like
1: but twenty seconds,
0: exactly. <laughs> you no, know, like for a few months. Um, but this guy has sort of come out of nowhere to be a uh, you know a very important person in Hollywood and someone that a lot of uh, folks are starting to work with who who is Kevin Mayer and why should we care about who this person is
1: He's interesting right now because he's got like 20 different jobs in Hollywood but the reason he, he came to prominence was he was an also ran in the CEO sweepstakes for the Walt Disney company he was considered the heir apparent there they were going to give him the CEO job when Bob Iger retired he ultimately didn't get that job it went to Bob Chapek Shortly after that, he left the company and he left for this big flashy job running the U.S. operations for TikTok, which you know obviously is a huge job. Trump did not like that TikTok was you know poisoning the minds of um, of American children with Chinese propaganda, which it, it definitely is not doing. Um, but he wanted the company sold. At the time, Kevin Mayer said, "You know what? I'm not going to stick around for this." He ended up leaving. Since then. He's had a bunch of different jobs. He's chairman of this sports streaming company called The Zone that a bunch of ESPN alums are doing. He's had a few spacs. He has launched this um, like crazy, well-funded company that is buying up entertainment companies in Hollywood from stars like Reese Witherspoon's company. He's had a couple talks with other people. He just bought the owner of the Coco Melon franchise, which someone who does not have children like yourself probably is not aware of. But I'm very aware of it, and it is in the top 10 of Netflix every night. It's these nursery rhymes that are sort of sung by creepy little kids and you know, CGI kids, very profitable. Um, he's going to pay almost three billion dollars with he's backed by Blackstone, the private equity firm. And that's another one of his jobs. And then uh, we just saw that he was signed on to be a consultant for Discovery when uh, Discovery buys Warner Brothers, Warner Media. And he's helping the crew that's buying essentially Warner Brothers and and HBO figure out what to do with their streaming strategy. So out of kind of nowhere, this guy has he's got his fingers in a lot of different pies. And most people in Hollywood tend to have an opinion about him and whether he's uh, he's, you know, the real deal or not.
0: Well, you wrote this week and I want to ask you about those opinions, but you wrote this week that Kevin Hart, who is, you know, one of these Reese Witherspoon-esque stars who has created an entire brand and content engine just around him. He's talking about selling all or some of his company to Kevin Mayer. Is that right?
1: Yeah, he's he's part of the group of talent-oriented production companies that is looking for either an investment or a sale to this group. And you know the the, the model for this is Reese Witherspoon. The, her deal was valued at $900 million, even though it wasn't quite that. A lot of it is equity into this new company. But the Kevin Mayer situation is interesting because he is throwing around a bunch of private equity money at these talent-based production companies saying, we can roll these up potentially and create an IPO based on all these companies together or an investment or some kind of transaction that will ultimately get people paid at a much higher multiple than what they're currently getting. And if he pulls off this Cocoa Melon deal, he'll have a huge asset that unlike a lot of these production companies based on talent actually has assets. They have, you know, a property, an IP franchise that they can exploit forever. And that's a big deal. And that's something that will give this company instant
0: value. So what do, what do people around town think about him that he's just a hustler? Is he for real? Like what, what's the, what's the consensus buzz behind his back (laughs) at the moment?
1: You hear different things. You hear, you know, he sort of has this kind of erratic persona when you uh, meet with him on a Zoom or something where he's kind of ADD all over the place. But um, he certainly has been in the middle of some of the biggest entertainment deals of the past 15 years. I mean, he was there at Disney when they bought Marvel and when they bought Pixar and when they bought, you know, uh, Fox and, and Lucasfilm. All these big deals that were really transformative. And he knows the digital space. He helped launch Disney+. Plus which has been a a success in the streaming market. So that's why Warner Brothers wants him. But then again, he's never been the guy out front. He was always the deal guy up in the hotel suite when the CEO was talking to the press. So he's now front and center and people are getting to know him a little bit more.
0: Matt, thanks so much. Um, I will see you at the 1025 showing of The Eternals. At uh, AMC Dine-In Marina 6. It's two and a half um, hours, so
1: maybe don't go to the late show.
0: (laughs) I won't be there. Don't worry. All right, man. Thanks. See you next week. All right. Thank you. Coming up, I talked to Julia Yaffe about the Virginia governor's race. Why Glenn Youngkin won this election and why this might be a path forward for Republicans after Donald Trump. Thanks again for listening to The Powers That Be and for supporting Puck, our new company focused on the inside conversation, the plot that only the insiders know, the real story at the nexus of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. Puck's content is great. I mean, don't you love this podcast? Just a little. So when you subscribe to Puck, you're supporting our great team, empowering us to do the work that really matters and grow our business and pave a path for a new media model. So check us out at www.puck.news. Joining me now from Washington, D.C., the District of Disaster, is Julia Yaffe, our resident pessimist about politics. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We are recording this in the aftermath of Tuesday's elections. They're still counting uh, votes in New Jersey. It seems like Phil Murphy will barely win. He's the Democrat. But the fact that the Democratic incumbent in New Jersey is barely getting reelected. Is just one of many storylines last night. Obviously, the biggest is that Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, uh, thread the needle between MAGA world and suburbia, and defeated Terry McAuliffe, who was trying to you know, take back his old job as governor of the Commonwealth. Uh, many other storylines, things to unpack. It, it's it's pretty clear when you're looking at why some of the stuff happened that the national environment was a factor. Um, Youngkin's vote share in Virginia matched pretty evenly with Biden's national disapproval number. Republican turnout was high. Typically in these off, off year elections in Virginia, it's a reaction to the party in power and the party in power is not doing much and they're not doing well. But in the era of all politics is national. It does seem clear that education became a signature issue in Virginia. Um, I was hearing about this from some friends around Richmond recently. But Julia, you just posted a piece this week about critical race theory and its impact on the election under the headline on Puck News, the GOP's critical race theory bazooka. How much of a factor do you believe critical race theory was in flipping Virginia, which hasn't had Republican leadership in 12 years, back to the GOP? I
2: think it was the factor. But before we get to that, I do want to say that New Jersey is not necessarily all that surprising. That state sometimes elects Republican governors. I think we're all old enough to remember Chris Christie. Anyway, uh, but as I said in my piece, you know, Virginia is really all anybody cares about in Washington. It's just over the river. So many Washingtonians and swamp creatures and this towners live there that it's real. really only the only thing people are talking about today. I do think critical race theory was the deciding factor. It was the thing that got the base fired up. And if you look at the numbers of who came out and who flipped from voting for the Democratic candidate to the Republican candidate, it's pretty clear. Turnout was really high. I'm just going to run through some of the numbers. Turnout was really high. Three quarters of the people who came out to vote on Tuesday in Virginia were white. 51% of the everybody who came out to vote on Tuesday said that parents should have a lot of say over what gets taught uh, to their children in public schools. And of those people, three quarters, 76% of them voted for Yunkin. We talked about white suburban women so much in the last two presidential elections. And uh, in 2016, we know they went for Trump because they didn't like Hillary. And in 2020, they went for Biden. And people assume it's because Trump was just too crazy and fractious and divisive a figure for them. And they wanted everyone to get along, presumably. And if you look at what happened in Virginia on Tuesday, it was really interesting. The white suburban women went for Yunkin by eight points. I mean, the difference between 2020 and this year was eight points. Of women, White women who had some college education or less, three quarters of them voted for Yunkin, and that was almost a 20-point shift from 2020. And then the last thing I'll say is that parents of kids who are under 18 also went for Yunkin by seven points. So it seems like, I mean, also given... What we saw coming out of Virginia and given these numbers, it seems pretty clear that this is what energized the Republican base in Virginia and got them to come out in droves and vote for Yunkin, even though it is a totally manufactured race baiting issue.
0: Um, I want to get into that in a moment. But if you even compare exit polls, not just to 2020, and there's obviously a swing compared to 2020, if you compare it to the last governor's race, Terry McAuliffe did substantially worse uh, than Ralph Northam did four years ago um, among those very subgroups that you mentioned. White women with no college degree, he definitely ran up the score there. I was, I was intrigued by that. And I think the economy might be some of that, some of that. I I was talking to one Youngkin strategist a few months ago who said he actually thought uh, suburban women weren't gettable. And that they could probably peel back some suburban men, some college educated men, um, and they, even they were surprised by the margins. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, to, to go back to the, the table setter of this, this conversation, it does feel like education was something that motivated uh, Republicans, but also swung people back into the Republican column. Have you
2: talked to him? Uh, Sorry to interrupt, but but you know you mentioned that that was a few months ago, and that he wasn't sure how they would get white suburban women to come out and vote for them. Um, Have you tried asking him if this was the thing that did it?
0: Well, yeah, and and the education—that's
2: the—that's the the delta factor.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, uh, no, I agree. I mean, I think in in the final few weeks of the race, talked to another Yunkin strategist, and they came into this race not really having an issue. I mean, even going back to the Republican primary convention, whatever it was, (laughs) however Youngkin got nominated, he was a rich guy who, you know, was trying to thread a needle and they were looking for an issue. And before Terry McAuliffe stumbled in that debate and said, you know, I don't think parents should be telling uh, schools what to do with their kids, they didn't really have an issue. And then once once they grabbed onto that soundbite and started exploiting it, I do think that education became a little bit of a Rorschach test where, you know, if you lived in right wing media, you started to hear a lot about critical race theory. But, you know, I have some friends in central Virginia who, you know, they saw education and heard, uh, you know, stories about how different school boards were thinking about getting rid of advanced placement programs and honors classes for math. In other words, trading uh, you know, high achievement for perceived equity. And again, race is an issue there. Or, you know, teachers unions, like a variety of things. But in the end, it, it's pretty stunning because just a few months ago, McAuliffe was winning among voters who said education was their top issue. Back in 2017, I believe Ralph Northam, the Democrat won on that issue by like 13, 14 points.
2: And, and he was a pediatrician.
0: Yeah, totally. It, but looking at today, you know, Youngkin... Um, among voters who cited education as their top issue, he won. A Republican won on education by six points, according to these exit polls. Again, that's an issue that Democrats typically dominate. And again, I do think there are some legitimate concerns about education. And, and the fact that Terry said the words, I don't think parents should be involved, was a pretty stupid gaffe. But um, it, it it gave Republicans and also right-wing folks something to plug into and a lot of that was critical race theory, and it's just became a buzzword when you talk to voters, even if people had no idea what what that actually means, or the fact that it's only taught <laughs> in graduate schools and isn't being taught in Virginia public schools. But I do think that there are, there were sort of worries on, on the part of parents that diversity and racial equality and anti-racism and all those things were seeping into their children's education, and critical God race forbid. theory just became a catch-all word. I know, I know. I'm just saying... This is sort of the buzz you would hear um, from voters.
2: You know, this reminds me what you're telling me reminds me of that podcast. Nice white parents is that nobody thinks of themselves as a racist. And I'm sure a lot of these people have Black Lives Matter signs on their lawns and, you know, hate has no home here and all that bullshit. But I think that when the rubber meets the road, as we saw after the protests of last summer, when the rubber meets the road. Nobody actually really wants to give up their comfort or their privilege or their kids' education, even if these are perceived, even if it's a false perception of giving something up. Nobody wants to do that, and it becomes just something that you say and just a lawn sign. And then the lawn sign actually becomes even more important because nothing else in your life indicates that you are not racist or perpetuating a certain kind of system and benefiting from it to the exclusion of your your fellow Americans. Um, And so you need a sign to um, indicate otherwise, right? Because if you need to say it. But I do think all of these issues, I think my friend uh, Franklin Leonard said it best. He's a black executive in Hollywood and he said it best. I'm going to butcher this quote, but he said, uh, when you're used to Kind of being on top, equality feels like oppression or like you're giving something up, but it's not.
0: Yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine who calls herself my suburban housewife source in Henrico County outside of Richmond, someone I went to high school with. And she was saying for months, even when a lot of savvy Democrats were saying there's going to be no such thing as a Biden Youngkin voter, that swing voters, you know, don't matter as much. Off your elections are about base turnout. She was saying for a long time, I'm seeing so many more Youngkin signs in my yard, in my neighborhood than I did the previous year back in 2017. Um, And again, she said a lot of uh, moms in, in the suburbs outside of Richmond, which is a weak spot for Terry McAuliffe, were talking on Facebook organically at various meetings about sometimes critical race theory, but just that, you know, I don't think... The school board should be like hurting my kids to help other kids, you know. And so, like this stuff does take some, it's a, you know, it's a sanded down version of explicit racial bias, um, but it does have. I mean, a that huge is bias though
2: on elections, it and it has
0: it has for you, it has it has since the '60s, right? The suburbs are the suburbs for a reason. No, but I just hold <laughs> on, hold on. Flight. I
2: just want to say that is. That is racism. Even if it's sanded down, even if its edges are rounded, that is racism to believe that you are giving something up when in fact you're not for equality, but also not wanting to give something up for justice, for equality, because you believe that your comfort and maintaining your own status and privilege in society is paramount or your child's uh, status and comfort in society is paramount. That your child is better than other children and more deserving than other children. I will say, I have to say, I used to be, my high school job was refereeing soccer. Oh, me too. Yeah. I come from a long line of soccer referees. My great uncle was a big time soccer referee in the Soviet Union. And he taught my dad how to referee. And then my dad taught me how to referee. And when I first got licensed by FIFA, um, the only games I was allowed to referee were kids games like, seven and eight-year-old soccer games, which was fucking humiliating. But um,
0: (laughs) I did the same thing. You
2: know, (laughs) I still I yeah, herd ball is a good way to put it. But I got to say, like, the worst part about that whole scene situation was the parents. Oh, yeah. They are the fucking worst. Like the kids were great. They played. They fell down. They got up. They're seven year old, seven years old. They don't know, you know, how their limbs work yet. And the coaches were fine, but it was the parents who, you know, there was a story in our licensing class. I remember that um, there was one game where they had to expel a parent from the game. They have to, had to give a red card to a parent because this parent was running up and down the sidelines with a whistle and blowing it whenever he thought the referee had missed a call. And so all the seven-year-olds would stop. though. You know? <laughs> You know, and I feel like, and that's what I kept thinking about, watching these crazy school board meetings and this insanity around critical race theory, which is not even taught in schools. It just reminded me of, you know, I'm not a parent myself, and I hope I would not be like this when I become a parent, though I worried that I probably will be. But yeah, something crazy and maybe a little toxic happens when you have a child.
0: My uh, my dad, uh, my brother and I also refereed. My dad went on to be a USSF certified ref and did travel tournaments and stuff. And eventually, even after we, you know, stopped refereeing. Well, my like dad he,
2: did college games.
0: No, no, that's cool. What I'm saying is he eventually quit <laughs> because he... <laughs> no, I know, again, I know, I'm kidding. And I grew up in these very suburbs that, that swung the election in Virginia last night. And, and we were going to games in Chesterfield and Henrico and Hanover and, and those parents were the things that eventually made him give up. He's just like, I'm tired of getting screamed at by psycho parents. Um, So I can, I can see that analogy actually. Like in other words, you might think your colleague from work is otherwise sort of normal and well put together. And then you see him in another context and they're fucking bananas. But I want to, I want to ask you though, Republicans are clearly, you know, in the Trump era, I think Youngkin uniquely did a pretty good job of balancing the uh, demands and impulses of the MAGA right with these very voters we're talking about in suburbia. And I don't know how well that will be replicated. Uh, I know you, you you think it might be, but my question is about Democrats because it's clear that Republicans aren't afraid to run on these issues that are either explicit or dog whistle issues, cultural issues, defund the police, crime, socialism. You know, Terry McAuliffe ran on I'm not Trump and Glenn Youngkin's not Trump, 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 Trump. There wasn't really a substantial message in his campaign other than I deserve to be governor again, which actually comes off as pretty arrogant. I mean, how do Dems answer the hot button culture war stuff that has really taken over politics? Negative partisanship has taken over politics. Like, passing the BIF in Washington isn't really something that feels like it would fire up Democratic voters, regardless of if either of those two bills had passed before Election Day. Am I wrong?
2: Well, You're not wrong. I think that what the last, I'd say, two decades have shown, at least, I mean, these are just the decades I've been paying attention, so (laughs) nothing else exists before this, (laughs) is that rage works and culture wars work. Remember the 2004 election when we were at war in Iraq, we were at war in Afghanistan, yep, and we were wiretapping our own citizens and torturing people in Iraq and black sites all over the world, but you know what? God forbid those homosexuals get married and ruin my hetero marriage, right? And it worked. He won. And he got to keep torturing and wiretapping people and whatever, and driving us headlong into bankruptcy and crisis. And I also think the Democrats have learned this lesson. I mean, look at the elections of 2018 and 2020. Rage works like nothing else. They were so angry at Trump, uh, I would say in most cases, rightly so. And they got unheard of turnout in 2018 and 2020. And even in 2020, I think, you know, Republicans lost, but they ran on a lot of these issues and their turnout also was crazy. I mean, 11 million more people voted for Trump in 2020 than they did in 2016. So they saw the four years that Trump was in office and were like, yeah, more of that, please. And I think it was because they played a lot of this culture war bullshit, right? Like socialists, the Democrats are all socialists. They want to uh, have like black people running around looting your neighborhood uh, and lowering your property values in suburbia. And yeah, so it was like law and order and socialism, which is I think also pretty similar red meat culture war signaling stuff. And I think this critical race theory shows that you don't really need – Like an agenda, a policy agenda, defending one or proposing one is not necessarily as effective as just playing on people's most basic emotions.
0: Yeah. And I I think I mentioned this earlier, but uh, a a friend of mine in the Virginia House of Delegates texted me last night when it sort of became clear that McAuliffe's trajectory wasn't great. And he said, I'd be interested to know what... McAuliffe's ultimate vote share looks like compared to Biden's approval rating. In other words, that McAuliffe's level of support would match Biden's level of support, and then compare it to how Northam's level of support matched Trump's uh, support back in 2017. And it was actually the it was actually flipped. The Republicans' level of support in 2017 didn't match Trump's. Northam's level of support as a Democrat matched Trump's disapproval rating, which was around like. 54% in Virginia. And it's looking like what's happening right now is that Youngkin's level of support is matching Biden's disapproval nationally, which is around 51%. Oh, so mm-hmm. that's the mo- the motivator. In other words, is, is opposition. It's negative partisanship. Um, and, and I find that to be a little bit of a, a shift in the, in the Trump era. Um, it's you're running against things. It's always easier to be the party out of power and run against who's in power, but it just feels like negative partisanship courses through every level of politics right now. I mean, even Defund the Police lost in <laughs> Minnesota, where it was where it was born, right? That slogan was born 5743, it got clobbered. And, you know, Republicans are still going to be running on Defund the Police next year in 2022 because it's such a, a potent issue. Look at what the Democrats are trying to do. I just think that Democrats, progressive, moderate, centrist are just generally kind of smug about how politics is supposed to work. That high turnout automatically favors Democrats. Oops, not anymore. That wasn't the case last night. That voters behave a certain way. And it's just, Republicans are just willing to push the envelope, <laughs> whether they're doing it intentionally or accidentally or emotionally. And, you know, it keeps it keeps rewriting the, the playbook. I mean, the the midterms in 2018 were, yes, a Democratic wave in the House, but Trump kept the Senate. And he was the only you know president to ever he was one of three presidents in a hundred years to do that, you know so I don't know it just it, it's I have no prescriptions for Democrats heading into next year. It just feels like they should start to listen to voters a little more rather than listen to MSNBC, but I don't know maybe that's just me.
2: So I've had a different perspective here talking to Democrats in d c, and I think. There is a smugness about something different. There's a smugness about the rightness of their path or the perceived rightness of it, right? They believe their policies are no brainers. They believe that every person with a working brain should support their policies. There's absolutely a smugness about that and about their ability to implement them and work the bureaucracy and be you know, good liberal technocrats. That said, I think I have never met people with more self-loathing and like, yeah, just self-loathing. They're so pessimistic always about, you know, they always, like all the Democrats I know in, in DC are always talking about how they always fuck it up, how other Democrats always fuck things up, even when they, you know, have the ball and how, how Republicans are just so much better organized and have better messaging and better discipline And are just better at this than they are. And there's always a sense of like when they win, they're surprised themselves. Especially after 2016. I think that was when it really broke. And after that, it's always like, you know, don't celebrate until it's absolutely official. Because who knows, we can fuck it up again. Because we're so good at fucking things up. And like that seems to be, even when they're the party in power in DC, my sense is that that's the, the, it's this like, we're, yeah, we're a hair's a breath away from messing it up one more time. And that is a weird combination with the smugness about the policy and the kind of bureaucratic capabilities.
0: I think you're right about that. Um,
2: I and also, sorry, sorry, just one more thought about that. Um, the other thing is like, I don't, I don't know anybody who was optimistic about McAuliffe winning going into this. Uh, I think the chatter I heard was, that Youngkin is definitely going to win. Um, that not only is it an off off year and that this is going to be the first of many elections when the power party in power gets punished by voters, that it's going to be, you know, the historic trend again, playing out again, but also because of all this red meat culture war stuff, it's going to be even worse. So I don't know anybody who was like, Oh, we're totally going to beat Youngkin. Um, I think people were quite pessimistic, at least in D.C. and in Democratic circles going into this.
0: Yeah, no, no, I think I think that's true over the last three weeks. I mean, it's just it, but it is a sea change from from back in May. I mean, I, I tweeted back in May that Yunkin had a shot um, if conditions were right. And, you know, I was the reply people in my mentions who only started paying attention to politics four years ago were like, ha ha ha, that can't happen. Northam won by nine. You know, but conditions change. Back then, Biden was popular. Back then, you know, vaccines were going into arms. Back then, stimulus checks were going out. You know, even John Favreau, who hosts a much less popular podcast than the Powers That Be Pod Save America. <laughs>
2: Haven't heard of it. <laughs> never second. heard of it.
0: Uh, tweeted the other day, or sorry, tweeted on election night that, you know, just a few weeks ago, Gavin Newsom blew it out in the recall and his you know vote share matched what it did in in 2018 and you know that was a different race in california it's obviously a different state much fewer kind of swingy voters out there but the conditions were different even during the recall uh than they are now you know biden's approval was better covid felt a little bit better at that moment i guess and so you know things can change i will say it's you know all but written that biden will lose the house and senate because that's how history works but there're can be some improvements if Biden can push his approval back up over 50 that can cut down on some of the losses perhaps next year but yeah heading into the election a lot not a lot of people are <laughs> really feeling feeling uh McCall in the professional class despite what the the professional flax were saying um, but you know yeah don't listen to them
2: can I just make two points there i i think that the california recall is fundamentally different because as you said it's a different state in the sense that, you know, California is true blue. It has these red pockets, but it's been blue forever, right? And Virginia has not been, right? It, w- it only went blue like a decade ago. And even then it was like leaning blue, leaning blue. And it was only in 2020 that people started saying like, oh, this is definitely a blue state. So that's one difference. And the other difference is like, who was even running against Gavin Newsom,
0: Well, that's the difference. I mean, Larry Elder was a right wing Trumpy talk show host. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It was like it was a collection of clowns and fools. Uh, This was like this was a guy who was. By appear by all appearances, a suburban dad, a suburban white dad, i.e. he looks safe. He looks familiar. He looks comforting and reassuring. And he looks like he has common sense and he's not going to let this crazy diversity shit get in the way of our kids education as if that should be part of their education. The second point I want to make is that, you know, I guess I'm disagreeing with myself. The, I think critical race theory and all this race baiting, I think is what clinched the vote. But I think the reason it was so close to begin with um, and the reason that Biden's ratings are so low, right? Like you expect any president's, ratings to drop after the initial honeymoon period. But Biden's have dropped really fast and really far. And a lot of it is negative partisanship. But a lot of it is also, I think, the misinformation about vaccines. And, you know, and I've heard as much from Republicans here in DC that one of the reasons that, you know, conservative media was pushing people not to get vaccines and telling them they're not safe and resisting all this shit is that The worse the pandemic got, the worse the economy got, the better for Republicans because it makes Biden look bad. It's going to sink his approval ratings. Plus, they don't want him to get the credit for cleaning up Trump's mess or to get the credit for a vaccine that they think Trump invented and should get the credit for. So I think a lot of the groundwork was laid by the vaccine disinformation campaign and allowing the virus to run rampant, especially in red states. So, like, people were seeing that it's really bad, plus they're hearing that this fascist big brother government is trying to put microchips and magnets in their arms. You know, but for some reason, more people keep dying and overrunning ICU wards. So, them's my two cents.
0: Biden's pollster, John Anzalone, tweeted the day after the election, people are, you know, finally seeing, saying that COVID is is getting better. I mean, like, people are, are seeing it and feeling it, but they haven't been... For the last few months, despite what Democrats have been saying that it is. And that was sort of my point about California, which was Gavin Newsom shifted gears and won and blew it out for two big reasons. One, his opponent emerged as this MAGA Trumpy guy, and he could use him as a foe and a villain in a very liberal state. But two, he doubled down on uh, health uh, regulations, masks, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, et cetera, again, in a state that favored them and blew it out. And I think Democrats kind of ran with that and said, we got to make COVID a like, centerpiece to our campaigns moving forward without thinking about the fact that the conditions around COVID can change for the better or worse, that people might get Even if people are dying in Florida and Arizona and Texas, the people might just be sick of this stuff that parents want to just send their kids back to school. And before, you know, the only other message that Terry McAuliffe ran uh, ran on other than Glenn Youngkin is Trump is vaccines and health and COVID. And if you look at the exit polls, Glenn Youngkin won 20% of people who support vaccine mandates. McAuliffe was barely more trusted on COVID than Youngkin was. And coronavirus was listed as a top issue in that race by just 13% of people. And so, like, again, I just think I'm not saying conditions will get better or worse for Biden necessarily. I'm just saying that, you know, we look at the most recent campaign and draw these very absolute lessons from them. And every campaign is different and unpredictable. Um, and, and COVID isn't necessarily at the forefront of people's minds at this moment.
2: Although if you look at those exit polls, right, it's still a top issue. It shared the number three spot with taxes and McAuliffe got 84% of those voters. So clearly some people came out to vote about that issue. There just wasn't enough of them. Right. And I think also on the other side, there were a lot of people voting on COVID, but in the opposite direction, right? Because Youngkin promised no mask mandates, no vaccine mandates. And I think people were also voting for that, even though that doesn't seem like necessarily having COVID as a priority. That's all I'll say about that.
0: All right, Julia, thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Peter.
0: Coming up, Dylan Byers will join me to talk about Facebook and the metaverse. Are you worried that we're all going to end up in the metaverse or that Netflix is going to eat Hollywood or that the biggest private equity companies will use their combined one trillion dollars in dry powder to colonize Mars? Don't be. Just read Puck. You'll know what the experts are talking about privately behind the scenes. Puck. We're the inside conversation out loud. Joining me now on The Powers That Be is Dylan Byers, our... In-house contrarian. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. That's me. Dylan, you you interviewed Mark Zuckerberg. Zuck. Yeah. Uh, a few days ago after Zuckerberg announced that they are rebranding Facebook as Meta, uh, which is an allusion to the, quote, Metaverse, um, which is Mark's uh, view of where the internet is going, where Facebook is going. Um, but... You know, I first of all, it's not—it's kind of unusual for big tech companies to uh, grant interviews. I mean, they these people, uh, sorry, these companies view their leaders as politicians. They're behind layers of flax. What did Mark tell you? I mean, this is this was a big get.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, what he told me uh, is—I mean, the the vast majority of our interview centered around what his vision is for the next iteration of the internet, which is the post. Right now we live in the mobile era, uh, but there will come a time after the mobile era and and that, according to him and according to many others, will be the metaverse. And he is trying to position his company to be one of the leading technology companies in that era of the internet and and for those who didn't read the piece or don't know, that the shortest way of describing the metaverse is it's it's basically a virtual, world uh, that we access through virtual reality headsets and through augmented reality glasses that basically allows us, gives us greater ability to interact with one another and to interact with virtual spaces than we have now and to sort of move past this era where we're all staring down at our phones, accessing everything we access through apps but instead to go into virtual realms or, or augmented realms in, in reality uh, and, and live out live out those experiences uh, in a way that, you know, I suppose would, would be the equivalent of, of jumping from 2D to 3D.
0: So before getting into the nuts and bolts of how that plays out in the tech universe over the next few years, how much of this rebrand was a response to Facebook's complete onslaught of bad PR, uh, about all the leaks coming from the Facebook whistleblower. Um, you know, and even before that, like several years of bad (laughs) PR, are are people actually going to start referring to Facebook as meta? Because no one I know refers to Google as alphabet.
3: Right. No, that's true. I, you know, look, I, I think that people will continue to call Facebook, Facebook when they're talking about the social platforms we work we, we interact with now. And I think it's important to remember that what Mark Zuckerberg is talking about with the metaverse is something that even he acknowledges won't go mainstream for another five to 10 years. So I, I, think, I think we have years ahead in which we continue to refer to the company as Facebook. As for whether or not this is a PR pivot, I mean, there's no version of talking about this where you can't acknowledge that the company, as you and I have discussed before, has been beset by at least five years of highly critical coverage, very negative press, and and, and quite a few controversies and scandals in terms of how that company has been run. And it is certainly advantageous at a moment when you have Francis Haugen going before Congress and leaking all of these documents. It is advantageous to rebrand the company and try and deflect attention, or rather, steer attention away from the present and steer it toward the future at the same time it would be very naive to think that that one of the biggest and most influential companies in the world would just make a a random decision one day that purely for public relations purposes they were going to rebrand the entire company and focus on driving $10 billion a year toward this new venture. This is something that Mark Zuckerberg has been thinking about for a long time. It is, I think, if you were to survey the experts in the field about where the internet is going, I think, by and large, most of them would tell you that some future akin to what he's discussing is the future that we're headed for. And I think, you know, my, my from my reporting and the folks I've spoken with at Facebook beyond Mark what happened is that in the wake of the 2020 election he made a decision and he made his decision was basically i can't continue to get bogged down in politics and pr and you know making sure that we don't have you know problems uh you know, you know or addressing problems with facebook or addressing the concerns of critics and lawmakers i have to focus on innovation if i'm if we're serious about taking this company to the next level and ensuring that this company is successful in the next decade, I need to put all my energy on innovation. And, and what he sees as innovation is not all that, you know, where he's going in terms of the metaverse is not all of that different it, of where companies like Microsoft are going, even where Apple is going. I think there is recognition in Silicon Valley uh, broadly defined that there will come a day within the next decade when we stop being so reliant on our mobile devices and we start interacting with the internet more through things like wearable technology.
0: You're exactly right. This is, Anyone seeing this as a sort of short-term PR move um, is, is pretty silly. Any large company, including big tech company like Snapchat, when they develop these strategies, it's a long-term process based on the, you know, strategy, the ideology of the founder, and it takes a while to develop all the materials, the talking points, et cetera, to roll this stuff out. So it didn't happen overnight, but it does seem like the metaverse, what it boils down to then is, you know, a world beyond our mobile screens. And obviously just like the social networking platform of Facebook, for instance, where we have AR and VR can like, and I work at Snapchat, I will say point of personal privilege, um, if anyone invented the metaverse, as usual, it's Snapchat. Uh, Snapchat continues to be Mark Zuckerberg's product manager. Snapchat owns OG. <laughs> Snapchat is the world's leader in augmented reality. Blah, blah, blah. You guys um, move
3: fast on augmented reality. You just, yes,
0: we true. do. So I will say that uh, Mark comes out and, and pretends to claim he's the visionary on this stuff when many other companies have been working on them for a while. But as usual, he gets lots of attention for it. Um, so here's my question. First of all, for the audience... Can we just explain what the difference between AR and VR is? Because people say that a lot in tech, um, but yes. I'm not sure everyone really yes. knows what it means. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong.
3: VR, virtual reality. This is you are fully ensconced in a virtual experience. This this to date requires a headset, uh, something like the Oculus headset that Facebook owns, uh, and that takes you to to a full on virtual world in which you are interacting with purely uh, virtual digital spaces. Uh, and those have become quite sophisticated in recent years to the point where they they increasingly seem more and more lifelike. And now in the metaverse, the way you will use virtual reality is you will be able to have shared experiences with other people. And so you could be in a meeting with someone who is on the other side of the world, and it could feel like you guys are sitting in the same room, looking at the same whiteboard, or perhaps you're playing ping pong with one another, and the audio you know, if that person is sitting to your right in the virtual world, you will hear that audio on the right. It's, so, it's becoming more and more sophisticated day by day. Augmented reality, which is probably a much more natural and palatable way for people to make this jump past mobile, are things like glasses, where you see the real world, but there is a, a virtual overlay. And so you might be playing ping pong with someone in real life... And as you are playing, you will see a virtual register of points ticking up on the board. Or you will be walking through the world and you will see you can overlay a map experience with information about every business you walk by through your glasses. There there are all sorts of use cases for this. And the way that folks like Mark Zuckerberg envision this is that as it becomes more and more sophisticated, you will be able to do things with the most minor motion of your fingers while you are wearing these glasses perhaps even just by thinking something the the pulsing of your head or of your brain will be able to transmit something that you want to text or information that you are looking for and so when mark zuckerberg talks about the metaverse he is talking about these shared virtual experiences that can be accessed both through virtual reality headsets and augmented reality glasses again the use
0: cases for these are sort of infinite in terms of how you might use this technology so yeah and i would also say that augmented reality could be for anyone listening if you've ever been on zoom and you've changed the background of your zoom shot like that is augmented reality in other words like you're using the camera to change the world and experience around you and so this is something I, I generally believe, um, but I'm open to other opinions. The options for the roadmap, rather in the world for augmented reality, seems much more possible than virtual reality. I, I just, I other than like a gaming headset for Xbox or PS4, like I don't see a ton of use case for someone putting a headset on their head and. Especially right. after we just had a pandemic where we just stayed inside all the time and we're craving human connection. Maybe that's being glib, but I just feel like there are spaces in our day, everyday life, you know, on Snapchat, on other social media platforms, when you use the camera of your computer, of your phone, whatever, to make your experience richer, more different, et cetera. Whereas going out and buying a headset and wearing it doesn't seem like that's where the future is going. And, and, you know, I, I, I guess I just disagree with Zuckerberg on that. (laughs) Well,
3: I think, look, I think what you have to do is, and and again, it's probably like we're 10 or 15 minutes into this discussion. It is there. We probably have a lot of folks listening who are like, what the hell are you guys talking about? (laughs) This sounds, uh, impossible, or if it's possible, it sounds terrible or scary, but you have to work backwards here. Right. I mean, if you tried to explain what the iPhone 13 was to someone, uh, 15 or 20 years ago, it would have blown their minds as well. And it it would be Amish to, to think that, uh, we are, we, we've arrived at the final iteration of, of what internet platforms look like. We, We, there will obviously be future iterations And anything that brings people closer to a seamless real-world experience in the virtual space is, is almost certainly going to come about. What I will say in terms of, yes, augmented reality is much more seamlessly integrated into the real world. However, there are already many instances in which we use the Internet when we are alone that putting on a headset won't really interrupt anything because we'll be alone. I think the cases for this are gaming is a big one. I think work is a big one. If you think about working, working alone at your desk and and you can join a meeting where you feel like you're physically present with, with people. And then there are all sorts of opportunities to, let's say you're, you work in architecture to actually go inside the building that you are trying to create rather than looking at a plaster model of it or a paper, you know, a, a sort of cutout model of it. Um, and then finally, I think one that people in the industry talk about a lot, somewhat with a bit of a smirk on their faces, are things like pornography uh, and other forms of vice where where people will, uh, you know, I'm, I, I don't need to go into it here, but the use cases are probably readily apparent. And so I think that as as foreign and weird and scary as this all sounds, I think you're going to have virtual reality actually be very logical to people in private settings and you're going to have augmented reality be much more logical to people in, in what we think of now as public settings in the real world.
0: Yeah, no. And tr- trust me, I'm not being a curmudgeon about technology. You know me. I mean, both of us, our careers have careened like based off of technology. Um, and I'm old enough to remember 2007 when a producer at CNN told me when I pitched a story about Twitter to never say the word Twitter around here ever again. Um, so (laughs) I know that things are not static and our, our use cases are not static and our habits aren't static. I just think that VR is something we've been hearing about now for like five, six, seven years. And other than, other than gaming, I haven't seen it adopted by that many people. However, I will say if the NBA, for instance, like puts courtside cameras around arenas and allows people to subscribe to courtside seats where I could watch a game. Like that, that's like a case that I could like feel like oh I could get into that. Like think like I, I'm just trying to like think of use cases where I could I could dive in. One more question before I let you go. It, it, it's clear that Zuckerberg created a product many years ago that a lot of people use and it scaled enormously. Um, However, he has either not been active about managing a variety of negative aspects of that platform. Um, They are extremely reactive rather than proactive when it comes to hate speech, disinformation, et cetera, et cetera. All the things you read about in the news. What makes Mark Zuckerberg the guy who gets to manage the metaverse? Like, why should we trust him?
3: I don't necessarily know that you should. I don't know. I, I, you know, I think if you're asking what what makes him eligible for it, it is it is the scale that you just mentioned, which is to say that he has already built what is the most popular social networking app in the world uh, that caters to billions and billions of people, and so the existing infrastructure is there for him. To create that is he, you know, one of the central questions I asked in in the piece I wrote based off of our interview and a question I put to him is, does the lack of trust in you right now from a public relations perspective and going back over the last half decade, will that be an impediment? Will that handicap your ability to excel in the creation of the metaverse in terms of having a seat at the table as one of the primary companies that gets to enable the metaverse? And I think that's a really serious question. And, you know, his his own mentor, Bill Gates, has famously said that Microsoft missed the mobile revolution uh, in large part because they were dealing with so many antitrust issues. I think what you see in Mark Zuckerberg now is someone who is by getting away from the present day controversies and focusing on innovation and tasking all of the the stuff he doesn't want to deal with to his deputies you are seeing someone who is trying not to make the same mistake that bill gates made and he does not want to miss mobile and I, and and will he get to do will he be the one who gets to do that he might not he faces a lot of competition from including microsoft and nvidia and roblox and a bunch of other companies that are angling for a place in this new world but at the same time I don't think the trust deficit is so immensely influential that it is going to kneecap him in terms of doing this. And that's for things that you and I have talked about before, which is that despite the public relations headaches, people around the world continue to use Facebook services. Congress has, has proven to be woefully inept in terms of taking action that would meaningfully curb Facebook's power. And from a legal perspective, Facebook and its executives aren't really as in much trouble as critics would believe. And so I I think that the world we are going to have to prepare ourselves for as Mark Zuckerberg tries to take a stake in the metaverse is one in which he is his company is constantly deflecting criticism and he is racing ahead to try to achieve this vision for the future. And and the new sort of narrative arc in Mark Zuckerberg's story now is not, can he maintain his dominant market position, but can he outrun his critics in order to set himself and his company up for a leading role in the future? And And I think that is going to be
0: really interesting to watch over the course of the next five to 10 years. Yeah, he is running fast ahead on Xeroxing um, Snapchats, vision and products. Uh, I will say to validate you, <laughs> Dylan, before we close out here, speaking of bad PR, all of the bad Facebook PR, you know, one of your one of your ride or die takes is at the end of the day, Facebook's um, value as a company, its market cap, its value to shareholders continues to grow. It is remarkably steady. I want to play a guessing game with you. A, a one month ago, before the, the whistleblower came about, Give me a guess of what Facebook's uh share price was in the market one month ago. Before,
3: before, before Francis, Haugen. Francis
0: Haugen and before the papers, three <sighs> fifty? Close. Three twenty six per share. Okay. Guess what it's trading at as we tape this right now? 326. It is 331. 331. Thereby validating. Everything you've been tweeting about, despite your mentions for the last month, Facebook trading more than it was a month ago <laughs> with some dips in the middle, some, some, some go. climbs and some dips, but I
3: know one way to think about it is that the, the, the PR has an effect. It really does. It holds back their growth. It delays their growth. It just hasn't sent it on a downward spiral from
0: which it can't recover. That is correct. Okay, Dylan, pleasure as always. See you soon. All right. Thank you, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Eric Johnson of lightningpod.fm for his support. And thanks, too, to Liz Goff and Ben Landy for their production help. I'm Peter Hamby, and I will see you next week.